Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, you lovely listeners, to your Wednesday episode of Creepy Tales. Today I bring you the finale of Tuku the Crocodile. Will he find out where he came from? Will he be sent back to the abyss? Or will he somehow escape? We're going to find out, mates. Either way, it's going to be a great ending and a big thank you to Feastringer for such a marvelous story. Your second tale is Beneath the Plastic, written by Parla. When a city starts to change around a man, its populace, no longer appearing to be who they are, the sole man within it tries to escape their fate. Turn the lights off, the sound up, and enjoy something different. I got my wounded form off the parking structure quickly and began my search for such a child. Now that I knew what it was I was running from, the knowledge provided no comfort at all, but in fact made me even more fearful than before. At least now, though, I could find a way out of the fear once again, if I hurried. I tried desperately to remember how I had found them in the past. I could not remember if there was some kind of sixth sense that I needed, or a form of magic to detect a child where I could determine mutual need for one another. But it was getting dark and cold, but not due to a sunset that was still a good hour away. It was a storm that was making its way across the sky right now, making the light gloomy and grey. My shoulders still hurt, and I could not move as fast but I had made it to one of the many pockets of suburbia in the city. I walked down a side street, a drizzle of rain dampening my scales. I heard thunder rolling off in the distance. If I had been superstitious, this would have worried me. But I am not superstitious, and I was already far more worried than any superstition could make me in the first place. The light was strange. It was that feeling of something being off, like everything was glowing and still somehow bathed in shadow. I knew it had put itself back together. I could feel its rage, like a heartbeat in my wound. It was angry and frustrated. I could feel its hatred growing, like the storm itself around me. The storm was causing fear in children everywhere in the area. It was bubbling to the surface, giving my kin quite the menu of things to become in order to finish stealing me back to my home. I still could not remember what my home actually was like and the fact that I had blocked it out over millennia made it all the less appealing. With the fear that the storm was bringing, however, I started detecting something else. I felt the need and the scent of wonder accumulating as well, and with it, a pull inside me. Whatever the shimmering form of life inside this crocodile was, it was being given a beacon to follow. As I turned in the direction of the child's brilliance, I gasped. In the storm clouds above me, I saw the features of a nose, mouth, and eyes coming out of the ominous clouds, the eyes looking directly at me. Someone out there was deathly afraid of storms and was allowing my kin to cheat yet again. There was only one way out of this. I had to get to that child. 
I was so tired and yet I started to run yet again. I was rustling through the leaves and several of the people that were starting to head indoors did double takes as my unreality began to get weaker and weaker. I got the impression they were seeing me out of the corner of their eye, but not enough to be sure. I saw the house at the end of the cul-de-sac where the child was. I felt his mind and his need like an oasis in this harsh desert of reality. I was following someone into the open door of the house. I'm guessing it was the child's father. Once inside the house, I heard a familiar sound. The severe weather sirens were going off and the noise was frightening. The man I had followed in did not seem to notice or care, and neither did the woman sitting at the computer. It dawned on me that the sound was part of the form my kin had taken, so others could not detect it consciously. I still saw the two adults' body language change, however, as if somewhere deep inside, the anxiety from my kin's presence was affecting them. I looked out the window and my huge jaw dropped open. I saw the monstrous cyclone beginning to make its way from all too near the horizon of the neighborhood I was in. It was picking up cars, cows, houses, and other imaginary debris as it approached. I saw it had that face on it that I had seen in the sky minutes ago. With the wind and sounds coming from outside that no one around me noticed, I could not tell if the word home was still being called out as its haunting horn rung out. I was once again entranced by the image. The creature had taken on a magnificent form of pure, overwhelming dreadfulness. I felt nothing but pity for the mind of whatever petrified child it had found to make this visage. The huge greyish brown pillar of destruction swerved and meandered its way towards me. They say the storm is going to mainly skip us, so probably won't have any power issues, thank goodness. The woman at the computer said to the man. The sentence reminded me that this did not have to be real. That it was only real if it reached me and pulled me into the vortex and into my previous home. I dashed upstairs, knocking over a vase, which was nearby one of the landings as I ascended the stairs. I heard the man say, What in the... As the item bounced down the steps to the floor, I found the room where the child had been beckoning me with her need, and I slipped in the open door. I could not hear much as the freight train of sound approached the home outside. The room, however, looked very peaceful in contrast to the raging sounds. It was dark save for a nightlight, and the light in the closet was on as well. I imagined it was to keep the monsters at bay. It looked like there was a starry wallpaper and several toys strewn about. There was a rotating light in the corner that was casting colorful patterns on the walls. It was the room's nightlight, and an immediate feeling of calm washed over me for a moment. I looked and saw the little girl on the bed, her eyes wide open. She looked maybe about four and a half, five at the most. Her expression was one with both anxiety and wonder in equal amounts. I had no doubt that perhaps she could not see me, but she could sense me. I also had no doubt that although not from her mind, the tornado of terrible imagination that was approaching from outside also must have been influencing her mood as well. It felt like being in the calm eye of a violent hurricane. I was not sure how to do what needed to be done. I was here. I could see her beautiful face. She could sense me. But how was I to bridge the gap from what I was to what she needed me to be? The answer to that question became both ironic 
and obvious within moments. I glanced up to the girl's window and saw the creature bearing down upon us. The lines between dream and reality for this girl were being blown away by the whirlwind. The young girl could see it now. The terrible face in the vortex, its eyes filled with lightning, and it was screaming. The window shattered, and every object in the room began to fly into chaos. The wind stung my skin, and the sound was unbearable. My instinct kicked in to when Emilio and every other child that had allowed me into their lives went frightened. As the girl screamed in absolute terror, I leapt onto her bed. The tornado hitting us now, and the roof was being torn from the house, disappearing into the entropic sky. I felt the familiar sensation of my shimmering essence being pulled into the thing that would send me to my terrible place of origin. But I had stopped caring about that. The only thing that mattered was this girl and her fear. I wrapped my arms around her and the full length of my tail to protect her from the onslaught as long as I could. The girl was screaming and so was I. She clung to my body as the world was being torn away. The noise had turned into nothing but silence. We continued to hold one another, both with tears in our eyes. When I opened my eyes though, the room had returned, the gentle soft light of the rotating nightlight circling its way around the room. The girl was coming out of her crying stage and into a grasping stage of post-balling. I was out of breath as well. We were still clinging to one another when the door burst open. The woman stood there, a look of concern and alertness on her face. She looked at us. She looked at her. Celeste, what in the world happened, baby? Mum came and sat on the bed. I let go of the child and stood back, letting her answer. There was a big monster. She started. It was in the tornado that just hit the house, and it was really scary. The tears were drying on her face. The whole house got smashed, and we almost died. Mum looked back with sympathy and amusement in equal parts. Wow, Celeste, that is quite a nightmare you had. No wonder you were crying and scared. Anyone would have. Celeste cut her off. No, Mummy, it was real. It was really happening and I would have died if Bellaboo had not saved me. Bellaboo? Mum's eyebrow raised. Celeste nodded vigorously. And who is Bellaboo? Bellaboo is the big strong octopus from her castle in the sea. She is my best friend and she protected me. I looked down at my body. Lavender tentacles with pink suckers were below me. I also noted matching pink polka dots all over my now mollusk body. She is an octopus? The mum asked, her amusement growing. Yeah, she can camouflage to look like anything and protect me. We like to play checkers when I can't sleep. Mum turned to a part of the room where I was not and said, Nice to meet you, Bellaboo, and turned back to her daughter. Okay, I still think you are a bit sick, and you probably had a realistic feeling dream. That happens when you have a fever sometimes. Celeste looked at me. I looked back and smiled. Celeste somehow could tell what an octopus looked like when it was smiling. She was aware that she would not be able to convince Mum of what had happened and what she'd experienced being more than just a dream. Okay, Mum, she said. 
Mum tucked her back into the bed and told Celeste that she would be back in a little bit to check on her. Go back to sleep, honey. Everything is fine. Mum exited the room. I came back to the bed and sat by my friend, my new ward. The memories I had were becoming more and more clear now, although I had some fading impressions that I was a large lizard. This was clearly nonsense. I was Bellaboo, a princess from an underwater kingdom, and I was considered the prettiest of all the sea creatures by everyone in my castle. My best friend was Celeste, and I liked to hang out with her almost all the time. I thought for a moment I heard something screaming outside the window, some poor creature that wanted me to go home. This turned out to be nothing more than the wind, though, as Celeste curled up in my arms and went to sleep. Beneath the Plastic The rain pattered gently in the dark of night, crystalline raindrops cascading down Robert's windshield. No matter how many times his wipers ran them through, they kept coming back. The wipers danced back and forth to the rhythm of the song on the radio. We can't stay this way forever. Robert mumbled along to the radio. Off-tempo and out of key. It didn't really matter to him. He had one thing on his mind, and that was home. Fourteen hours on a cramped flight was never Robert's favourite place to be. And he was always preferential to his own living room. He had promised his wife that this would be the last trip for a while. And that he would request to be stationed at home more from his boss. He didn't have much of a shot at getting that request approved, but Robert had always been a dreamer. Fuck. Running low on gas. Kay'll kill me if I don't feel it soon. Might as well do it now, I guess. Robert thought to himself as he stared, disappointedly, at the dropping fuel needle. The yellow roof of the town gas station was just coming into view over the horizon. That signified the outskirts of town which signified home. He was more than ready to put this entire trip behind him and return to the place he belonged. But first, there was always an obstacle. Robert pulled into the gas station, putting his car into park and stepping outside. The rain had stopped, which was odd considering the ferocity at which it had once berated Robert's windows. He walked up to the doors. Through the glass windows, he could see that his friend Harry was manning the counter for the night. Good old Harry. Not exactly the first familiar face I wanted to see, but it could be worse. Hiya, Harry! Robert called out nonchalantly as he pushed the doors open, immediately making a beeline for the energy drinks. Harry gave no reply. You awake, Harry? Or are you just giving me the silent treatment because I had to miss the camping trip? Robert asked jokingly as he approached the counter with his drink. He looked at Harry, and a pit began to form in his stomach. It wasn't Harry at the counter. It couldn't be. Its hair was blocky and shiny. Its face had no texture. It stared blankly at Robert with eyes that weren't real, holding a grin with fake teeth. It was a mannequin. A mannequin that looked exactly like Harry. Its arm was outstretched, as if the lifeless husk were mid-transaction with the customer. 
It was then that Robert realized that he was alone in the gas station. Just him and Harry. This is a joke. It's gotta be a joke. All right, Harry. He called out. You got me good. Joke's over, huh? But how'd you get a mannequin so realistic? I mean, Jesus, Harry. This thing is almost a spinning image of you. How did you... He trailed off, waiting for Harry to jump out from the back room, or from beside an aisle. He was truly alone with the mannequin. If this was a joke, nobody was stepping forward to admit it. Uh, okay, guys. He stammered as he backed up towards the door. This has been real funny. Harry, you and all your gas station friends are fucked up for this one. I... I gotta go. Remind me to kick your ass for this later. <laughs> he pushed the doors open behind him, shuffling towards his car. He opened his car door and locked it behind him, breathing an instinctive sigh of relief. <sighs> he didn't know what he was so afraid of. His friends were playing a prank on him because he had been gone for so long, and he was letting it get to his head. He gazed into the window one last time before pulling away. In the time that he had gone to his car, the mannequin's head had swiveled 90 degrees. It was looking out the window. It was looking at Robert's car. And it was looking straight at him. Robert's pulse quickened as he drove away, his shaky hands gripping relentlessly on the wheel. His breathing was rapid and uneven, and he found it hard to catch his breath at all. That wasn't possible. If anybody moved in that quickly, you would have seen them. You would have had to have seen them. So who moved that mannequin? As he entered the residential area, Robert began to see more of them. There was a boy standing in his driveway, red kickball placed gently in his plastic hands. His face was a permanent mold of youthful joy, and a female mannequin watched him from an open doorway. There were cyclists laying under overturned bikes, cargo short-clad fathers posed with lawnmowers that had long since died. It was as if they were all placed instantly, with precision but without warning. Not much further to the house. Robert murmured to himself, Find Kay, she'll know what's going on. If this is still some fucked up prank, she's the one person who won't be in on it. I know she won't. Deep down, he knew it couldn't be a prank anymore. A group of friends replacing one townsperson with a mannequin to fool him? Sure, it was plausible. But now the mannequins were everywhere. They were on every lawn, on every street, on every block. All of them were posed like people going about their lives. They were getting into cars. They were checking the mailbox. They were bending down to pick up the paper. Each of them. Like the Harry mannequin was an identical copy to one of Robert's fellow citizens. People he knew. People he spoke to on a daily basis. They were gone somehow. And these things stood in their wake. Every time Robert looked in his rearview mirror... The mannequins he had passed were all looking at him. Every last one of them, no matter what they were doing, had miraculously turned their heads to stare at him. His breathing quickened even further, and his pulse was so quick it felt practically non-existent. When he saw the red and blue flashing lights behind him, he felt such an unexpected relief that it startled him. He pulled over, ecstatic that there was somebody in this town who could explain what was going on. Even if it was a cop who probably thought he was driving like a lunatic. He watched the cop car pull ahead of his car. 
parking a few feet in front of his headlights. The door to the squad car creaked open, but an officer stepped out of the car. The door stayed open, moving back and forth, gently in the wind. Please, Robert whispered to himself, please be real. You can't, you can't do this to me. He wasn't sure who he was talking to anymore. Somebody had done this, that much he knew. This was a perfectly rational situation, and there was somebody at the helm of it all. He had to keep believing that, or else he would lose his mind. Slowly, Robert stepped out of his car, approaching the squad car. Sitting in its driver's seat was a mannequin. It was dressed as a police officer, with a cheap velcro moustache and aviator sunglasses covering its plastic face. There was a half-eaten donut placed comically in his right hand, its left resting coolly on the wheel. Robert stumbled back, his sense of reality fading fast. You... you drove to me. Robert mumbled, pointing at the lifeless mannequin. How did you do that? Answer me! How did you do that? You're not real, you're not! Robert heard a sound from behind him, causing him to turn around. The sound was a red kickball rolling towards him. He looked up and his blood froze in his veins. All of the mannequins had assembled in the center of the street. Their arms were at their sides, their heads facing directly towards him. They stood in a perfectly uniform line formation, with the young boy Robert had seen at the front of the formation. Robert tried to scream, but the noise got caught in his throat. He moved for his car, but stopped. He didn't want to get any closer to the horde, and his house was only a block or two away. He turned heel and ran. Slamming the squad car door shut as he ran, he heard the siren start up behind him, but it didn't matter. Soon, he would be home, and somehow this nightmare would all be over. He kept running, never once turning around. There was no footsteps behind him, but he knew they were moving. He could feel them, always just a step behind him, though they made no sound in their pursuit. He could hear the squad car though, which seemed to be taking up the rear judging by sound distance. Up ahead, he saw his front lawn come into view, and he thanked Jesus for bringing him this far. He threw himself against his oak wood door, thrusting the key in and turning it quickly, nearly falling inside. He stood up quick, locking the door behind him. His house was dark, and he turned lights on as he went frantically heading towards his stairs. He clambered up the steps, nearly on all fours. He needed to find Kay, and he needed to get her up to the roof. He didn't know what to do after that, but if those things got inside, they'd be safe on the roof. Robert was a businessman. Lying to people was his speciality, and right now, he was lying to himself with every hopeful thought that entered his frail mind. He was so concerned with finding Kay that when he crashed, into the mannequin at the top of the stairs. He hardly even comprehended what was happening. He fell to the ground at the top of the stairs. The mannequin he crashed into practically exploded into pieces. The head rolled over to him. He saw the plastic mold of Kay's messy bun. And he couldn't hold back the tears. He stood up, looked down at the woman he loved, reduced to nothing more than plastic pieces on the floor before him. Suddenly, there was a sound downstairs, a slight, almost unnoticeable sound, the sound of glass cracking under pressure. They were almost in. Robert brushed the tears away with the sleeve of his jacket pushing on towards the attic. He quickly climbed the attic stairs, being sure to collapse them up behind him. Once in the attic, 
he pulled open the hatch to the roof and forced himself through the hole. The night air hit him hard after what had felt like an eternity of trying to escape his own house. He rose to his feet, taking in his surroundings. The horde had surrounded his house, all of them standing perfectly still, their arms now raised as if they were an angry mob in a monster movie. He looked out towards the horizon, just as the sun began to rise. Coming home wouldn't bring safety. Going home wouldn't bring safety. Maybe the dawn of a new day would. Robert had been grasping at straws all night. Any other kind of thought would push him further to the brink of insanity. As the sun rose, it began to illuminate the rest of the town, enabling Robert to see far beyond the periphery of his own lawn. The Horde. He couldn't even call it a horde anymore. The army was closing in on him. They poured in from every street in his view. They came from every direction, from each house on each street. In the distance, he could see police cars and ambulances. It didn't matter. He knew what sat behind the wheels of each one. Robert sighed. Somehow, during the long night, the fear and panic had subsided to some hellish form of acceptance. He walked to the edge of his roof, slowly sitting down as he looked down at the mannequins surrounding his house. Every one of them, no matter how far away they were, were all meeting his forlorn gaze. And for a brief moment of lucidity, Robert appreciated their company. The Wonderful Tale of Tuku the Crocodile, who is actually, now, Bellaboo, the multi-tentacled protector from the sea, a tale of transformation, escape from a hellish landscape, and a bid for freedom. Tuku the Crocodile is a story that really has you wondering every step of the way where it could go. He could have been taken back only to escape, or perhaps dies trying to escape, and another hellish being taking his place this time haunting children's dreams, instead of protecting them. Either way, I really enjoy this tale, Fee, and each story you get that much better. So thank you, mate, for sending it through. And if you, lovely listener on the other end, have a tale of your own, reach out to me on storiesfablesghostlytales at gmail.com, where you can have your stories heard. The second tale about the town turning into plastic mannequins? Yikes! This story would do so well as a movie script. It's so full of suspense and action, it had me on the edge of my seat. What do you think about the ending, mates? He accepted his fate, and in the end, welcomed the company. I mean, I wonder if, at that point, he was already turning into one of them. What are your thoughts, mates? Oh, and the easter egg that was in the last episode with Tuka the Crocodile? Well, when the glass shatters, and the creature from the abyss falls to its death, well, almost death, and starts piecing itself together. Well, that glass sound in between it has a reversed piece of audio, which screams out, come home. There were a couple of guesses and some were close, but all in all, a good effort from you listeners to try and get the answer. Now, you little lovelies, I want to thank the Patreon supporters who single-handedly supercharged this episode with 20 new sound effects and 10 scores of music, all thanks to the podcast Patreons. First up, the superhero that is Maya, my legendary Ode Night Tea Titan. I just wanted to say thank you so much for your level of support and helping the podcast improve. 
The audio today was all thanks to your contribution, and I'm paying artists to actually provide for the podcast. Legends like you make it happen, so thank you so much. And my white tea warlords, Ion Cows, Lee Bauer, and Ara Mello. Thank all three of you for being amazing and supporting me at this level. Your dedication to this podcast helps everyone out here. I've been able to buy a set of sound effects for this episode that really added to the realism of Tuku the Crocodile, and it really turned out great. All thanks to you. So thank you so much. And the blood that pumps through this podcast veins, my Earl Grey Enforcers, Chad Warren, Joss Heather, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Divided by Zero, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, and Tea Time Drinker One. You're all so important to this podcast, and thank you so much for deciding to support the show and me. If you want to send some love my way, mates, visit www.patreon.com forward slash sfgt. And you can help the show out with any level you can spare. It all goes right back into the show's production. Thank you all for being amazing. I'm going to complete the case of Hitoshi Matsunaga this Friday and find out how he was caught and complete my analysis of the case. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, mates, till next, we meet.